Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Logically Speaking. This is our events edition. I'm Tatiana, and today I have the immense pleasure of speaking with John Swanson, who is the Director of Security Strategy at GitHub. Welcome, John, and thank you for talking with me today. Thanks for having me. Yes, definitely, and thanks thanks again. Um, I'd love to jump right in. Could you take a moment to introduce yourself and your background for the audience? Yeah, sure. So as you mentioned, um, I'm the Director of Security Strategy for GitHub. Uh, I've been there about seven years, uh, previously led and built uh, our incident response, threat detection, and threat intelligence capabilities, uh, and now have moved into kind of a strategic uh, cross-functional role where I work on really difficult problems that sort of end up where security and the business, the broader business and product intersect. Um, so that's kind of become my specialty over time. Uh, before that, I spent time in public higher education uh, in security and network engineering roles. Oh, that's amazing. I know, you know, before we started recording here, you were talking about the the, the culture shock between East Coast and West Coast tech. So that's that's kind of an interesting area where you were also in higher education and doing stuff in that arena. As someone with your background who's led incident response and threat detection, threat intelligence, like the whole gambit, and if I remember correctly from your talk at Black Hat, you've also helped in like account compromise identification and remediation strategies. So someone in your position leading that charge of security strategy and kind of directing security conversation could you clarify the main distinction between multi-factor authentication and two-factor authentication? Because I don't think people fully understand the difference. They kind of see them as the same thing. And then also, could you explain why verification and authentication methods are critical components in an effective security strategy for business? Yeah, absolutely. So I'll actually start with kind of a hot take here, and, and then it's, I think folks shouldn't get too wrapped around the axle about the differences between 2FA and MFA. Now, mm -hmm. technically, in terms of what they are, 2FA traditionally is something you, you know, which is going to be your username and your password or basic credentials, um, and then something you have, and that could be um, a one-time password from uh, a text message. It could be uh, produced from a 2FA app like Duo Authenticator or Google Authenticator, um, it could be uh, a token provided by like a, an old school like hard, hardware token, like an RSA token, for example. Um, so that's 2FA. You have two factors, something you, you uh, know and something you have. Uh, and then MFA takes the first two and then adds something contextual, um, you know, something that you are. So that could be bio, biometric uh, in terms of either fingerprint or facial, facial recognition or perhaps in some, some arenas, you know, um, like iris recognition, but uh, I think that's outside the scope for most folks. Mm -hmm. uh, and it could also be con contextual. So um, as an example, some authentication systems might take into account where you are uh, geographically uh, or potentially what type of device you're coming from. Are you coming from a device that is issued by your company, is known to be managed by your company, those types of things. Generally speaking, though, I think what's important is that anybody look to move beyond the basics, uh, move beyond basic passwords and simple secrets, uh, because the reality is that humans are humans, they're going to reuse them, um, you know, and they're gonna be lost or stolen, uh, and then you just don't have that second line of defense. So to the other half of your question, in terms of why this is important, um, 
you know, I think the statistic is from the FIDO Alliance that about 80% of breaches today are still sourced from passwords in one way or another. And 2FA or MFA, uh, especially if it's a good phishing resistant form, really is the most dramatic thing any business can do to make an individual employee or account more resilient to theft or compromise. Um, it's just, it's one of these things that is um, very, very impactful. And relatively speaking, if done well, um, it's sort of low drag and easy to implement. Um, in terms of bang for your buck, really, if, if I could encourage any organization to take one measure, implement strong phishing resistant MFA or 2FA, um, and I think you're gonna make a big difference for your business. That's interesting that you say that. So when you when you say phishing resistant, um, that there's this whole thing about businesses not really wanting to move to like SMS verification and things like that because of you know spoofing and now with AI like voice deepfakes and stuff like that, even calling like what are your what's your take on that? I think this depends a lot on who you are and what your threat model is. At GitHub, we have a global community as an example. And, you know, there are 100 million developers on the platform. And we have to think about folks um, in countries where access to other forms of 2FA may be difficult. We have to think about folks in um, unusual environments like educational computer labs. And there's some accessibility concerns. Um, but particularly thinking about our global audience, we've elected to, to leave uh, SMS 2FA as an option. It is imperfect, uh, unequivocally imperfect. Uh, if your threat model, you know, if you happen to work for a defense contractor, for example, um, or someone in the biomedical industry, or um, you know, the sort of pointy end of the tech industry, I, I certainly wouldn't recommend using SMS. Um, you know, there are ways, you know, SIM swapping and some of these other more interesting ways uh, of sort of intercepting or or sort of um, overcoming uh, that type of two FA. But I think it's important if you have a broader global or demographic demand to consider inclusion of those types of 2FA because any 2FA is better than no 2FA. Mm -hmm. Now, you know, in terms of phishing resistance, again, if you have that more complex threat model, I would certainly uh, consider moving to ideally a hardware-based uh, or hardware-backed uh, web authn format such as security keys. We'll also see how pass keys come along. Pass keys are really, I think, going to revolutionize some things. Uh, they're still evolving a bit. And there's some debate about whether whether pass keys are really quite as secure because they sort of technically break the, the MFA. Um, but there's a whole debate we can get into there. But <laughs> I think, you know, generally speaking, my advice is if you have a complex threat model or you're you have a, a low risk tolerance, move into something web authentic or FIDO backed. Um, and figure out how to do that sustainably for your business. That makes sense. So you kind of, I think we're leading into what my next question was going to be, which was what are some of the key benefits that businesses gain from implementing MFA? Like, could you, are there any examples you could provide that would contribute, like how it contributes to an improved security posture overall? I mean, done well and done consistently and comprehensively, it really does eliminate um, the vast majority, I would say, of the risk from um, basic credit user credential type intrusions or incidents. Um, you know, I can only speak anecdotally in this regard. I don't have any statistics prepared on this, but um, I can say that personally, once, once you know, in the places I've worked, once we've made this transition, um, you basically go to a place of near zero 
sort of employee or individual account compromises. Um, it allows you to sort of take one entire classification of threats and dramatically dial it back and then go focus your effort and investment elsewhere. Um, and at the end of the day, when, when we see that, that stat that, you know, 80% of breaches still have something to do with passwords, uh, you're, you're eliminating just a huge bucket of risk uh, in a relatively tractable, inexpensive, generally speaking, type of way. Um, mm. Again, the bang for the buck is just about as good as it gets in the security industry. Yeah, and that's that's something that it takes like all of two seconds to get used to. And then after the fact, it's just, this is just how it is. And it becomes a lot easier, especially if you're having to sign in on different devices or mo like having to re-authenticate after a certain amount of time. It's just something you get used to. And I think that's one of the, um, that's one of the main complaints that I think we've seen and I've seen in my different tenure through cybersecurity is that people are less likely to want to uh, adopt new security measures or even something that makes their life slightly more inconvenient or harder to get something done. Um, so I find that very interesting because, because of that. And so I guess those are, so those are the benefits, the good side of it, but what are some of the challenges that, that you've seen, I guess, maybe from from like small to mid-sized business or even enterprise, because GitHub is is huge. Um, what challenges have you seen people facing when they're trying to implement like new security measures or specifically MFA? Yeah, I mean, I think there's a couple different ways to look at this. And again, as as you sort of um, delineated there, there are some differences in terms of scale. So I think for and, and to be honest, when GitHub went through this sort of internally was a number of years ago, and we were a smaller company then. So I think that's good good um, perspective in terms of like the mid-size or like kind of the baby enterprise sort of thing. Um, mm -hmm. So there's some things to think about. And I actually led, that was my first exposure to this sort of, this part of the world, I think. I led our company's effort to move from uh, sort of, we had 2FA consistently. We were using a, a push notification-based 2FA system that was rather convenient, uh, but we wanted to move from that to something that was more phishing resistant. Uh, and so I led that effort for the company. And I learned quite a bit about um, how we can do this better as a company uh, and, and other folks can accomplish this. So I think the first thing you mentioned is sort of the, what we call friction. And, you know, this is a pain, this slows me down. Um, this means I have one more thing to do. So that's one thing. The other thing is lockout. And then, you know, the, the ability as a, an individual or as a business to recover from someone being locked out because they've lost their 2FA factors or, or something of that regard. So there's a couple of things to consider when you do this. Um, the first is that I would really encourage most companies to think carefully uh, about the user experience. You know, you sort of mentioned, well, I have a couple different formats and I'm going to have to use, the, use them in different places. For some businesses, that may be unavoidable, um, depending upon um, their business model or if they're working with other clients that have different requirements, and that's unavoidable. But if you have the benefit of being able to sort of pave your own path and, and think about this, I would encourage thinking about the entire process and all of your experiences. What you want to avoid if you can is, uh, you know, my employee has to dig out this factor for this part of our tech, tech stack and, and this factor for that part of the tech stack. Uh, and I've seen that in other businesses and it's a, it's a giant pain. Um, mm -hmm. So think carefully about what tooling you can use uh, and how you can sort of build your identity stack in a very consistent and coherent way. Uh, ideally, so that the, the strongest, most desired factor is something that can be usable effectively everywhere. 
um, and that, um, you know, they only have to have one and you can focus your efforts from a, a user experience perspective on making that one factor um, or that one type of factor anyway, uh, as usable and easy to adapt to as possible. So that's the first thing is, is try to design a very consistent uh, environment with sort of as few stops as possible. Um, so as an example of this, think hard about whether you can put something like Okta um, or ping if they're still around um, or or AAD in front of you know all elements of your um, tech stack and provide like a really consistent user experience and sort of portal or gateway into your systems that requires you know one type of 2FA that you have well understood and sort of well oiled. Now in terms of that well oiled, there's a couple other things to think about and this was really critical for us. You want to make sure, specifically if you're moving toward things like a hardware token, uh, like a phishing resistant web authentic hardware security key, the UB key as an example, you wanna figure out really how to issue them to employees consistently and quickly, um, and then how to ensure that if they lose one, you can verify they are who they are, they say they are. Uh, and that's a little easier in some senses in the remote world. You know, you, you can hop on a Zoom with an employee that you know and do like a, a true verification. You know, obviously, with AI coming, like there's some interesting challenges in that space, but I think those are a little a little far down the road for most folks. Um, and I think, you know, think about how you do your recovery. Think about how you do your, your user sort of identity verification internally in, in order to do like a reset or an unlock if you need to do that. And then in addition to, to issuing those keys easily, make sure you have an easy way for employees to get a replacement key um, or a replacement hardware token if you're using like RSA tokens or something like that. Um, you know, look at having a, a vendor engagement so that an employee can self-service shipping a new key at no cost to them. Um, you know, for, for instance, early on in GitHub, and not every company will have this, this scenario, but we, we had like sort of an employee swag shop and we stocked security keys so they could go order a $0 security key. Um, some other options in this realm are that YubiKey, for example, they offer an enterprise program um, where they'll handle the logistics for you in terms of both shipping keys to employees when you do the rollout um, and potentially mm -hmm. also in terms of um, replacements. Now, if you're a more traditional organization, you've got an IT shop that's local in the office, just make sure that IT has a, a backstock of, of the, the factor type that you, you use um, and that they're prepared and it's easy and it's there's no friction, there's no cost to the employee. Uh, you don't want this to be hard. Um, let a user walk into the help desk or the IT office and, and request a new key and hand them that key without question. Now, basically, if somebody loses five of them, maybe that's a different conversation. Um, but, you know, try to make it easy for folks and lower that friction all the way across. Yeah, that's that's a great idea. And for and I love how you described it as friction, because, yes, the word friction, it's like, OK, anything that's going to slow you down or stop you um, and people are more resistant to that. But the idea of having like an employee swag shop or a place that's easily accessible for them, because one of the things, you know, if you were locked out, like you're locked out of your computer, it's like, OK, well, then if you're locked out of all your systems, like how do you how do you access like your messaging platform to authenticate in there to contact your IT team? Like you don't have access to your email. Am I going to be emailing from my personal account? But what if I don't have the email address of the person I need to access? So it's just a really painful process if it's not done correctly. So that's that's a great idea. 
The other thing you can think about in that regard, and it depends on the flexibility your sort of authentication platform authors or offers mm -hmm. you, um, you may be able to take something like your internal messaging system and sort of dial back its authentication settings. I'm not saying this is right for every threat model, but you know, for instance, you might get locked out of your critical production systems. You might get locked out of um, you know SSH access to production infrastructure, but you might still be able to access your Slack or your Microsoft Teams. So if your authentication platform offers you the ability to sort of vary things, think about that and think about whether or not it's a way to sort of um, offer some different on-ramps and off-ramps um, when you get into that scenario. A full lockout can be very disruptive. And, and certainly if your risk posture sort of demands that, think very carefully about what those sort of... Um, what that recovery path looks like, and then make sure that your employees are educated on that and have access to resources, maybe potentially even not behind authentication, like a, a shop or something like that, that they might have uh, some access to via some other means so that they they are not out of luck. The last thing you want is an employee maybe who's traveled to Europe um, or somewhere else has lost their recovery factors and can't get to anyone. Um, mm -hmm. there's a scenario where you very quickly reduce the trust in the program you've built. Exactly. And you're just introducing even more friction into that equation. So it's like a self-feeding <laughs> nightmare. Absolutely. And I, I think the key here is like, if it isn't usable, it isn't actually security. Um, mm -hmm. you know, this stuff can have an enormous impact in terms of risk reduction. Um, but if you make it unusable, you really quickly lose that trust, that buy-in, and you might even slow the business down more than, than if there had been an incident in some ways. So be pragmatic is what I would say. You know, perfection from a risk perspective can often be harmful to a business from a sort of logistical or efficiency perspective. So try to find the right balance in the middle of those two things. Exactly. And like you said before, it's finding that intersection with security and business. Like you, you have to find that balance that's will help alleviate a lot of that risk, but you know, you're never going to eliminate risk completely. That's right. I, I have a few fun questions. So a bit of context for this one coming back from black hat and, you know, like hacker summer camp and all of that. I noticed a lot of businesses were using very similar messaging and as someone that's in marketing, I, I get kind of blind to that from my own company. But when you go to these events, your eyes are opened and you're looking at all these other vendors and you start to notice all of the similarities across how people are promoting their businesses and their products and services. And so I'm curious to hear what you have to say to this. What words or buzzwords do you see being the most overused or misused in cybersecurity? I love this question. Um, this is what I think about. And I think a couple of years ago, I would probably tell you it was threat intelligence. You know, everybody said that they had threat intelligence built into all their products. And I could go on a whole spiel about the difference between data and intelligence. Uh, but I think today, probably a little more familiar to most, and I think we're all probably a little tired of it, is, is AI all the things. Um, now, I want to sit here and, and acknowledge that GitHub is itself sort of an AI company in some regards, and, and we're building an AI product and it's actually great, but in its proper context. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I think from a security perspective, AI is not a panacea. It is not a silver bullet. It's not gonna solve all our problems. It's not gonna mean that we don't have to hire security analysts. Now, I think what it can be, and I, that's how I view our product for developers, um, and even for me, who's not really a developer, I found it useful, but it can be an accelerant. 
Um, it can help you contextualize something. It can help you summarize something. It can help you understand a problem you might not understand because you just don't have exposure to the knowledge potentially. Um, now you still have to verify it and, and AI large language models have some limitations in terms of like, um, you know, how they, how they present information and the type of information they present and sometimes the accuracy of that information. So it doesn't remove the, the fact that, you know, you kind of have to do your homework and you have to validate some things, uh, but it can be very powerful. Uh, but from the security perspective, I don't think we're at a place now where it's going to remove the necessity for a human with excellent judgment and analyst, whether it's an intelligence or incident response or threat detection or any of those other things. Um, humans who have good expertise and, and have gathered experience, you know, there's judgment that they have that really helps them make the difference. I think judgment is really critical for security professionals, the ability to kind of like look at some information, look at a situation, maybe do some pattern recognition and say, this doesn't feel right to me, so I need to dig deeper here. Uh, AI is not going to do that for you right now. Mm -hmm. Might AI help you quickly write something or, I don't know, suggest some detection logic um, that's relevant and useful? Absolutely. Um, is it going to like sort of like peel back the, the corner of the, the carpet and look under it and go, mm, this doesn't feel right. I think we need to dig here. It's not. Um, so think about it as a tool in your toolbox, um, but it's not going to solve all your problems. So that's that's my current sort of uh, buzzword rant. <laughs> I love that. And yeah, I mean, even even at the events, it was a huge topic. One of the things I was talking with our our internal SMEs was the fact that, yeah, it, it helps alleviate like a lot of that, the noise that you get, like helps make their job more efficient, but it doesn't really, it doesn't take the human out of the equation. Like you said, you, you need that expertise and that logic and that reasoning and the experience behind like, oh yeah, I've seen these types of alerts before, even, even just common sense. Like after being in that role for a while, you're like, you can see the the trends or the little things that pop up that are indicators of compromise and things like that. Humans, you're not going to take them out of the equation, at least, at least not yet. We're not there yet. Not there yet. Absolutely. <laughs> so this is another, another fun one. I like, do you have any go-to resources that you could recommend for people looking to learn more about building a stronger security posture, building up that resilience or even implementing a security strategy for their business. Yeah, I do. And I and again, this is a this is really predicated on who you are and what your threat model is, or uh, maybe what your compliance or, or regulatory needs are. And that will vary by the industry that you're in or sometimes your geography. Um, but one of the things that I like for this in terms of like getting a foundational view, I'll give you a caveat to it in a minute, but sort of a great starting point is a lot of the NIST documentation from the US federal government. Um, it tends to take a very broad programmatic view of security and they have sort of both broader documents about security programs and then they have narrower documents all the way down to documents about how to implement 2FA at scale for your organization. Now you kind of have to like, there's a grain of salt here. Um, you know, the US federal government has a lot of concerns. It's a big entity. Um, it has specific requirements in certain places that really have to be met. Um, and, you, you know, you, if you're a small business, you don't necessarily need to meet the same bar. But if you look at that documentation and you kind of take it in its spirit, 
um, and then sort of adapt it to who you are and what your needs are. I think it's a really great starting point to get contextualized. Um, the other thing that I would recommend looking at um, is, you know, some of the larger companies who have had a lot of success in this space, the Microsofts, the Amazons, the Googles of the world produce wonderful white papers um, that have great information about how to do these types of things, often at scale. Um, but they're, they tend to be sometimes a touch more readable, um, digestible than some of the, the sort of U.S. federal documentation. Um, I think those are a great starting point. But again, you're going to have to do that exercise of like, okay, this is Google over here, or this is Amazon over here. Um, how do I dial this to the right place for me or my organization? I think those are really good resources. There's also a great, great number of like blogs from professionals doing this day to day uh, and some good social media resources as well. Though I think that's a little more challenging these days with Twitter. Twitter was kind of the home uh, of the information security community. It still is to some degree, but I don't know if it'll be there in 30 days. Um, so certainly that can also be excellent. And the last thing I would say was really, I would really encourage folks to get out on the conference scene if, it, if it's something that they enjoy. And particularly, this is where I'm going to sort of um, rep something that I've enjoyed a lot over the years. Uh, there's a series of security conferences called B-Sides. Um, there are smaller, they're typically regional or sometimes like city to city based. Um, and they're very like open and welcome and they're not quite as um, quite as overwhelming as a Black Hat or a DEF CON. Um, they're very accessible. They're very welcoming to students or newcomers to the industry. Uh, and you'll get different perspectives at those B-Sides conferences. They're also typically very affordable, uh, sometimes even free. So um, I would encourage folks to get out to those and, and see what others are doing as well. That's great advice. And I especially like your plug for B-Sides. I've been to several of those events and they're definitely uh, a lot more enjoyable for the more introverted people because <laughs> you're not bombarded with thousands of people. You maybe have like a couple hundred, um, maybe a thousand, depending on the city that you're you're in. But yeah, and they have them all over the U.S. So I recommend and agree 100%. <laughs> As an introvert, insecurity plus one for me. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. All right. Well, that's kind of it. I think since we're at time, do you have any, I don't want to say last words because that sounds a little creepy, but do you have any parting words or words of wisdom that you'd like to share with the audience before, before we go? I think there's just two things that really matter. And I'd love to see security practitioners think more about. And we talked about some of this, I think, earlier. Be pragmatic in your approach. Find the balance between what the business needs or or wants, you know, culturally um, or in terms of its value and security and risk management. Um, if you over rotate toward risk management, I think you're really you're going to put yourself and your company in a position that's difficult. You're going to add that friction. You're going to reduce that trust and buy in. The second thing I'd say is like actively cultivate a culture that is security positive. Now, by doing the first thing and not making it miserable for your employees, you're setting yourself up really well in that regard. Uh, it makes it a lot easier for folks to buy in and feel good about playing their part in securing your company. But I think culture can be a control if you have a good one. Um, so spend time thinking about that and about how you curate that as a company and as a security professional. It will make a big difference. Security culture is is a big topic of discussion, and even with within our company too, just instilling that in people. You know, it's all about educating people and also making them feel empowered, like they are active in the decisions that are being made, and they're a part of of what's going on. So, I love that wise words. Thank you, John. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. Well, that's it for this episode of our events edition of Logically Speaking. 
make sure to tune in to our next episode and stay cyber first and future ready.